Hello and welcome to the Parasports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. I'd like to thank you all for joining us as we talk about optimising sports performance, specifically through the lens of an athlete with a disability. Today, it's my great pleasure to be joined by the uh, Associate Professor Nick Bird um, as we discuss protein and protein needs of athletes. Uh, So thank you, Nick, for joining us. I'm just going to do a little bit of background. Nick is the Associate Professor of Kinesiology and Community Health at the University of Illinois, uh, and he leads the Nutrition and Performance Research Group. He has a Bachelor's of Science and a Master's at Ball State University. He did his PhD at McMaster University with Stu Phillips and a postdoc at Maastricht University with Luke Van Loon. Both Stu and Luke are two of the leading lights when it comes to protein research. So um, Nick has certainly got a a good pedigree behind him. Uh, So welcome to the show, Nick. Um, Yeah. Great thanks, to have thanks, you with Thanks, Liz. Us. Yeah, it's happy to be right. here. I, I, um, in the background of, of Nick's uh, office, he's got maps of both Maastricht and also his current location in <laughs> Champagne in oh. the States. <laughs> You're also, maybe you can see one more, Hamilton oh, as and, well. Oh, <laughs> okay, so he's multinational. <laughs> we won't get him to speak... Um, in, in multiple languages at mm. this point in time, though. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so, Nick, um, just to start us off, I guess, can you give us a little bit of history of your sort of work in the protein research area um, and maybe give us a little picture of what it's like as a subject in some of the studies that you've been involved in um, in terms of just, you know, the 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 techno- technology and the complexity of, of how that research is done. Yeah, sure. No, I originally started off my research career at Ball State, as you alluded to, with Todd Trappy, whereas using stable isotope methods, and he sort of really taught me the brass tacks of, of the method, if you will. Um, with him, we were more interested in um, non-selective um, uh, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, and looking at their impact on the regulation of uh, skeletal muscle mass. So non-selective COX inhibitors, I guess, is what I was alluding to. Um, from there, um, I went with Stu Phillips to sort of solidify some of those fundamental techniques and stable isotope methods that I learned with uh, or started to learn with Todd. Um, and then ultimately navigated over a Luke Van Loon, as he alluded to, sort of expanded a little bit, still using stable isotope methods at the level of the muscle, but really shifted up into the whole body sort of level, trying to understand that modeling using one of his pretty nifty tools that he just refers to as an intrinsically labeled food protein, which gives us a, a proxy for um, protein digestion absorption. Um, and just so, I'll stop you there. So just for the for the audience, because um, at the moment their eyes are glassing over, um, <laughs> just the intrinsically labelled uh, food protein, basically you fed a whole lot of this um, label to a cow. Um, is that correct? And, yeah, so- and then the cow becomes the avenue by which instead of there being a, an infusion of, of the labelled protein, it's the cow, the, the meat from the cow that becomes the, the avenue of getting that into to the subject so that you can then track what happens with it. 
That's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, I guess we can even rewind a bit more. So I, I sort of alluded to that. I sort of how we monitor or I've been studying protein metabolism is using stable isotope amino acids. So um, we all have, you know, obviously amino acids circulating um, within our bodies. Um, a lot of them are going to be the most abundant form, the nat- most naturally occurring uh, uh, amino acids are going to be, uh, have a 12C carbon. Um there's some that's going to be floating around that's going to be a 13C carbon. Uh, this is just an example. And so what we do, and that's a stable isotope, the 13C version of an amino acid would be um, a stable isotope. So what we do is infuse them into human participants um, and just to allow us a, a mechanism to, to trace where these amino acids are going. And then with the labeled food, yeah, we go one step further. We needed a We needed to get that stable isotope tracer into the actual food matrix of a, of a food source. Um, over in the Netherlands, we, we focused on milk proteins. Um, and so to make uh, an intrinsically labeled food source, meaning to get a stable isotope amino acid into a food source, we have to introduce it to, to in this case, the, the cow, a lactating dairy cow. Obviously, they're really good at synthesizing milk. Um, so in the case of the intrinsic labeled milk, we actually infuse the amino acids at a very high level. And during a week, um, during throughout the week, we were collecting their milk. And then they were using that amino acid tracer, obviously, because it's just an amino acid. The beauty of a stable isotope, your body treats it just like any other amino acid. So it was incorporating that label into the actual milk protein. And then we collect it. Um, fractionate it in this case, so we could fractionate it down into their major counterparts, whey and casein. Um, and then you can imagine um, a cow is a big animal, so that means a lot of tracer has to go into that uh, into that cow to make a, a labeled food protein. Um, and so and that's when I expensive moved over, stuff, isn't it? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I, I can't remember the exact cost, but I think a lot of those experiments just to produce the milk was anywhere between 100 to 150,000 euro. Um, so not, not cheap. Yeah, yeah expensive. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of product being generated off of that because obviously Luke Van Loon is quite prolific, um, really, really productive. And um, to keep his pace, he needs a lot of milk. Um, but when I moved over here to the, uh, to the U S to university of Illinois, um, obviously I just learned, spent the last two years learning how to use stable isotope amino acid tracers in particular, the labeled food protein. Um, it's a technique I, I would, lo- I wanted to bring here, but just due to the, the high cost of admission, um, meaning the cost to infuse a cow, we had to get a little more clever, um, and so we made intrinsic labeled eggs. Obviously, a chicken's much smaller. Um, in this case, we <laughs> instead of infusing a chicken, we just simply put the amino acid tracer into the, the food. Mm-hmm. The chickens ate it. Um, they lay one egg a day. We collected the eggs, and then well, we had intrinsic labeled eggs. Right, and that experiment um, only costs around ten thousand dollars. So you know, more of the the poor man's approach to labeled food production. Um, if you will. And those are the predominant food sources being labeled. Um, there's certainly, I mean, you can, you can label 
any animal. Um, it's just, uh, you know, eggs and milk or you get a lot of bang for your buck because they produce those on a higher level in the cow experiments and even in the chicken experiments. We also labeled the meat. Obviously, they're still synthesizing new muscle protein. Um, so uh, the meat also was intrinsically labeled. Um, so we, we also had intrinsically labeled meat from both the chicken and the cow experiments. Okay, great. Um, thanks for for going through that. And then when someone's in and you're trying to assess protein requirements of, say, a day, for example, um, they get this label infused into them in, in some way or another by either consuming the, the um, labelled food product or by having it <clears throat> infused through um, a, a drip of, of some sort, correct? Um, then what happens? Like, how do you measure uh, where that label has gone in terms of what proteins it's been incorporated into? Yeah. So, yeah, I um, sort of um, got ahead of myself a little bit. So, you know, as, as you know, Liz, traditionally um, dietary protein requirements have largely been based on nitrogen balance techniques, right? And, you know, the issue there is that um, yeah, it's fairly easy to measure protein in, whether you use food recall, uh, dietary food recalls or actually give all the food the participants eating, but it's harder to measure nitrogen out, right? Sweat, mm-hmm. fecal samples, urine, et cetera. Um, and then we kind of know natri- nitrogen balance can adapt to certain physiological states. So if you eat, if you under eat protein for a bit, you, you can sort of reset your nitrogen balance. Um, and the same is true when you overeat. Um, so there, um, you know, there were some issues with the nitrogen balance data, I, I think from the most applied sense, the nitrogen balance technique to determine protein requirements is largely you're going to be prescribing those, uh, protein requirements on a daily basis. Right. So as you know, you're a practitioner, you tell an athlete to eat, um, you know, whatever the current numbers are, one, 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kg of protein per day. They're going, yep, you bet. I got it. Right. Meaning it's not really that informative in relation to um, frequency um, around a training um, bout or even competition. Right. So we always believe that if we can provide protein requirements on a meal by meal basis, um, you know, um, as opposed to on a on a daily level, this is perhaps more useful um, to to the athlete, to the practitioner. And, you know, one of the one of the values of stable isotope amino acid tracer techniques, um, I have a a specialty in um, the prime constant infusion methods. But again, there's all kinds of ways to deliver that stable isotope amino acid tracer. But um, with the, the prime constant infusion method, it's really good at giving us sort of the responsiveness. In our case, we're largely interested at the level of the muscle, the responsiveness of muscle to a particular meal or food source or whatever, whatever uh, the question is in that moment. And so the reason we're really interested in muscle is you know, I mean, obviously all athletes sort of can intrinsically recognize that um, the amount of skeletal muscle mass we have is really important for performance. Another important mm-hmm. point there um, is that sort of your muscle serves as one of the largest reservoirs of dietary amino acids we have in our body, right? Just by virtue of its mass, it's a really large pool of protein. 
And in particular, yeah. the myofibrillar proteins or the force producing proteins, um, you know, what's responsible for generating that strength or power. Um, they're, they're a big depot. So, you know, it's sort of where we're, the end point of where we use dietary amino acids. Um, so if we're meeting the needs of muscle, I guess we could argue that we're likely meeting the needs of all other bodily tissue based on that notion that your myofibrillar proteins or your muscle proteins are sort of the, the reservoir, the primary site where we're storing these amino acids. So that's why we think muscle is a real relevant target tissue for well, uh, mm-hmm. as well for sort of this muscle centric approach to dietary protein requirements. Um, and again, when we use those techniques, we can prescribe those on a meal by meal basis. We can study them, you know, when we wake up after an overnight fast, after uh, an acute exercise bout, um, and sort of give us information on how does, um, in the case of this conversation, how does protein impact, uh, repair and recovery, um, from an acute bout of exercise. And so at some point in time, though, you've actually got to go in and grab a piece of that muscle and have a look at how it's incorporated sure. that um, protein or that amino acid that you've, right. you've labelled into it. Um, yeah. So that muscle biopsy um, or that it's done, um, can you give us a, a, a visual on what the size of the needle is, how many of those biopsies you might need yeah. um, and, and what muscle group? that's like is best to use sure um you know in terms of um the amount um you know there's you know as as Stu phillips always taught me or trained me just sort of well you know nick there's no wrong way to get a piece of muscle um meaning people have different approaches obviously you want to do it safely and um with minimal consequence to your participant um but um, people have, you know, there's different approaches to it, different techniques. Um, we use um, the Bergstrom needle technique. Um, so you can get a little bigger sample. It does require an incision. Um, and when we think about the size of tissue, you know, we're not harvesting a whole muscle by any means. Um, you know, a, a general or normal muscle biopsy is going to be about 80 to 100 megs of wet tissue. And you can kind of visualize that by it's about the end or the size of the end of a pencil eraser. You know, so not, mm-hmm. not, not a large amount, very, very small, small amount. Um, there's some researchers who use um, more of a punch needle technique. So um, the idea there is it's a little less invasive. Um, you don't have to make a big incision and um, you don't get um, as much tissue. I think they usually range about 10 to 15 megs of tissue. So this is a small piece. But to do some of the, the stable isotope muscle protein metabolism work, being able to obtain a little, little larger sample is certainly beneficial. Um, so again, you know, 80 to 100 is pretty common. Um, and the Bergstrom needle technique is a pretty common approach. Um, in terms of what tissue to sample, um, so I mean, that ultimately is going to go down to, you know, training specificity. Um, what tissue was active during that exercise bout? Um, in my lab and many others, we're studying largely able body athletes you know, and individuals who are running, cycling. Um, so we target the vastus lateralis or your thigh muscle um, because there's not a lot of nerve innervation there either, meaning, um, you know, there's obviously nerve innervation to contract that muscle, but uh, it's a little lower risk to sample that site. It's a big target, um, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the thigh muscle is the, the most 
commonly utilized site to take a muscle biopsy. And again, because that muscle is highly active um, during a lot of exercise activity, certainly Dave Costell, um, Todd Scott Trappy over at the Human Performance Lab at Ball State University, um, they'll do um, the lower legs, so the soleus, gastroct. Um, I know Dave Costell's also done, when he was doing a lot of those swimming studies, the deltoid um, muscle. Um, I don't have experience in that. When I was up with Stu Phillips at McMaster, um, uh, he would do bicep biopsies. So again, sort of, um, you know, what's the question? What tissues activated? Um, these kind of things. I know um, you sort of alluded to the point, you know, we do have to take a piece of muscle, which sort of leads us to the concept that um, sometimes the study elite athletes, that can be problematic. Any coach, any uh, practitioner, generally, they don't want you touching their athletes in that way. Anything that might impact um any the subsequent training and certainly the, the competition. Um, so um, you can, yeah. sometimes it is harder to recruit some of these high level athletes, uh, professional athletes into these studies for that reason, because you, you are a little sore for a day or two after a biopsy. And you've worked hard to get that muscle there. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we synthesize about, yeah, I was going to get ready to say we're synthesized about three to 600 grams of muscle protein on a daily basis so that 100 migs that we're stealing is not going to impair function but it's funny you mentioned that because that is a concern even at you know a lot of the times we're studying recreational athletes um and when you're doing a weightlifting study you should see the sadness in some of their eyes because like i worked hard for that <laughs> tissue so we always have to remind them uh it's such a small amount it's trivial you've already resynthesized this much by the time you get up in the morning uh, and that's, I think that's useful to, to understand is that, you know, it's, it, whilst it's quite an invasive technique, um, it's, it's very site specific and it's, and it's such a dynamic tissue, the muscle. It's something that's turning over, which is why we have those daily protein requirements because we don't store that those amino acids particularly well we and the muscle is is turning over all the time um and so it it, they are daily requirements that are set to kind of keep that balance and and there's a bit of fluctuation in those recommendations um you know if you're a growing athlete so a younger adolescent athlete the requirements are a little bit higher um if you're an athlete who's um under you know consuming a slightly lower calorie diet then protein requirements are a little higher at least that's what the estimates are um can you give us a bit of an idea of the limitations of that research in that real life setting so for example you said that you know different groups have studied different muscle um locations it's really interesting because in the para space there's very, very few studies, um, particularly for um, individuals with a spinal cord injury or with with lower limb atrophy who are predominantly using their upper body. Almost no one does research on those upper body muscles um, and certainly not in that population. So what are the limitations and why do you think that is? Um, you know, I've, I've had conversations uh, probably with, with you and certainly some of the, the actual Paralympians and at least on um, my side, the limitation there is is that if we would cause any damage to one of their their primary movers, you know how they how they 
move around. I don't know. It's often like, is it really worth the risk as, you know, on my end? I mean, with anything as a scientist, we always weigh, you know, risk assessment. Um, um, and so that has always been my hesitation is, you know, the biops or the, you know, the, the sample, the, the bicep, it's a little more risky, right? Smaller muscle, a little more nerve innovation there. Not quite that risk-free sort of approach because of, for that reason, um, just, you know, I would hate to, you know, even for the next day or two, there's going to be some soreness there, just impacting perhaps activities of daily living a little more, um, could, could be a hesitation, um, making sure the the coach isn't knocking on my door, asking me what I did for athlete. (laughs) (laughs) It's another limitation. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's that's the hesitation. I, I know the athletes, at least the ones here at the University of Illinois, uh, at least a couple of them would probably be more than willing. <laughs> and some of them probably would be like, no way, you're not touching me with that Bergstrom needle. <laughs> um, and that's why, you know, I talked about, you know, that's it's where... Scary looking. The needle itself is a bit off-putting, I've got to say. It's yeah. quite long and quite sizable, so yeah, I can understand deceptive. that. And when you say a needle, it's really like an instrument, I guess, you know, I mean, because it's not a traditional needle. When you think of a needle, you think of a syringe and, you know, like a legitimate needle, like most, like when you go to the doctor to get a shot or something. But uh, it's, it is a deceptive when we say a needle and then, you know, you pull out the Bergstrom needle, which is, um, yeah, it's pretty robust. So yeah, an instrument would be um, a better, a better description, especially when you don't have to put the whole needle into, into the muscle, right. Cause the needle is quite long in nature. So, mm. um, if a participant usually, you know, I try not to, you know, I tell them, man, you know, for the first, for the first experience, for the first biopsy, um, you maybe not want to pay a whole lot of attention, but then once they understand the experience, then some of them tune in a little more, especially, uh, medical students. They really love to watch every aspect of that, of that procedure for sure. And you, you sort of just prompted me, um, I forgot the answer. So the number of muscle biopsies that's going to be obtained is again, going to be de- dependent on experimental design, um, to, to calculate a rate of muscle protein synthesis, which is what we largely do. You generally need two muscle biopsies to look at the change in enrichment or how that amino acid tracer is being incorporated over time. Um, but some experiments, you know, I've been up to, you know, six in a single, in a single setting. These are going to be generally in a healthier population, a younger population. Um, but again, you know, um, yeah, so after, you know, four to six biopsies in a single day, yeah, you're going to feel that. Um, you're going to be a little sore in the morning. <laughs> Um, and so do you think um, that it is that the, every muscle behaves kind of almost the same? So if you've got a, a research study that has um, come up with estimates based on the, the thigh muscle, do you think that still translate to other muscles like the deltoids and, um, you know, perhaps the biceps? Or do you think it is going to end up being location-specific? I want to say yes, just in case the reviewer is listening and <laughs> just to make sure. Yep, highly relevant. That's the only place you need to study. No, I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, it comes down to, um, you know, fiber type distribution, other different turnover rates between type 1, type 2 fibers, et cetera. Um, you know, there's been work done in that area. Um, and, um, 
there doesn't seem to be substantial differences. And I mean, there's some small turnover differences in, you know, a type one versus a type two fiber, but most, most muscles with the exception of, um, you know, the, the soleus is, is, is of a mixed fiber composition, right? So when you think about it that way, um, you know, your soleus muscle is going to be type one. There's certainly other muscles that's going to, you're going to see that sway a little bit. And then, you know, when you're dealing with these sort of elite athletes, you know, the best of the best of the world, um, the genetics and the blueprint sometimes can be a little different. Um, I can remember, you know, the, the work that Todd Trappy and Scott Trappy did when they had an opportunity to take a muscle biopsy from a world champion sprinter. Um, and the, the signature from that world champion sprinter in terms of its fiber type comp, in terms of his fiber type composition was very different than even, you know, some of these high level runners or sprinters. Right. Um, so, I mean, there, there, you know, things could be different, you know, um, but when we're doing science and experiments, we're generally trying to capture, you know, trying to translate at the, to the general population, trying to ca- capture that biggest pocket, right? Yeah. There's not a lot of professional elite athletes, which, you know, who you deal with, you know that. They're, uh, you know, the, the Paralympians, yeah. they're, yeah. <laughs> they're the, the best of the best, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, um you know, if differences start to arise at those elite levels, that's a good question. I think that's a really hard question to answer because of access to that kind of population and, and different, even in different um, disciplines, you know, a track versus a basketball, you know, all these, it's going to be, it's going to be different. Um, so, you know, in general, yeah, the thigh is, is, is a good muscle because it's a mixed fiber. Um, and a lot of your other tissues are going to resemble that sort of distribution with the exceptions of a couple, but in general, I'd say the, it's, and, and the turnover is, is the turnover is going to probably be reasonably similar. You're not going to have drastic differences in terms yeah. of that protein. You know, turnover. yeah, I'd say that's fair. I mean, one of the questions we always get is, let's say you're doing a training study, right? And you take a muscle biopsy at the beginning, and then you take a muscle biopsy at the end, right? And sometimes you'll you'll look at, you know, the response after an acute bout of exercise before training in, intervention, re- repeat that same experiment at the end of an intervention, right? So you kind of get an understanding of how, pro- how protein metabolism is dif- differing. And the question there is, you know, how does the activation pattern, right? How, you know, how does training impact, you know, are reactivating different pockets of fiber, fibers post-training mm-hmm. um, versus before training? And how is that impacting the requirement? Um, that's a tough one to answer, you know, because we are just sampling a small pocket of fibers. I mean, that's just the nature of the, the Bergstrom needle technique. Um, we're assuming that if we get a good activation of the tissue, that, that pocket's representative of the whole tissue, Right. I mean, that's an assumption we make with that technique. Um, uh, You know, we just have to live with some of these. I think it's important as a scientist that we just acknowledge some of the limitation of any technique, um, you know, try to understand and address it as best as possible. But, you know, some of the stuff is is the best we can do. Um, It's the best we have at the moment. Very much, Dick, for your time. I really appreciate it. And I think that um, you've given us some really interesting things to consider and, and a bit more insight into the complexities of, of that protein research. And we hope that you continue to get um, good funding and, and keep using your imagination because yeah. I think there's still lots, lots more to come.
Absolutely. Thank you. Yep. Thanks.